0: It's true. If you go to Alaska, in some areas you're going to have grizzly bears, wolves. If you go to certain parts of India, you must be careful with tigers, with cobras. If you go to some areas of Africa, you must be careful with hippopotamuses, lions, black mambas. But if you go to Crete, you don't need to worry about this type of animals. You need to worry about the population. And I think you could say the same. If you come to Salem go to Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles. But if you know the truth, if you know the truth that the Bible teaches about sin, the depravity of sin, if you know the truth about God's holiness, if you know the truth about God's grace, you know that apart from his grace, we all are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, I'll read verse 5 and then we jump to verse 10, it says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you, mu- so that you might put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. That they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit. For any good work, you may be seated, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to the Lord our God. Brothers and sisters, uh, Tuesday is October 31st. October 31st is known as the Reformation Day. That's when we celebrate the Reformation. But in the Reformed circle, in the Reformed churches, we usually have Reformation Sunday on the last Sunday of October. That's when we take some time to, and the Reformation Sunday is is just so the church can literally take some time just to reflect and proclaim and think about what the Lord Jesus accomplished during those dark days. Amen? We are not worshiping reformers. We are not worshiping the Reformation. We are worshiping the Lord of the Reformation. That is Jesus Christ who brought the Reformation so that we could be here today with our Bibles in our hands. But since we spent a lot of time talking about the Reformed doctrines earlier on this year, remember we were going through many months talking about Reformation, Reformed teachings, I thought it would be better for us just to continue our journey through Titus. But as we come to Titus chapter 1, especially verses 10 through 16, that's where we are right now, I would argue that this section is deeply connected to the Reformation. And you might ask, how is Titus 1, 10 through 16, uh, inseparable from the Protestant Reformation. And then we need to remember that the Reformation was a protest and a fight against false teachers and false teachings that had contaminated the church. The whole reason for the Reformation is because the church had been deformed by false teachers and false teachings. And that's what they were doing. Matthew Barrett, he says... Countless historians have gone to great lengths to explain the Reformation through social, political, and economic causes. No doubt each of these played a role during the Reformation, and at times a significant role. Listen to this. Yes, Yet most fundamentally, the Reformation was a theological movement caused by doctrinal concerns. The Reformation was a theological movement because sound theology had been perverted, contaminated, corrupted, deformed. The church was in a dark situation. No wonder it's called the Dark Ages. We saw in our last sermon that many, verse 10 says, for there are many false teachers. And that was early on in the first century. You think about the 16th, 15th century. And then you can multiply that many by thousands. The number of false teachers that had invaded the church of Christ. So... The Reformation was Jesus' mighty work to silence and rebuke those false teachers and remove them from his church. Uh, and here's one example of how the churches prior to the Reformation were contaminated with false teachers. So I'll be quoting from John Calvin who was living on those days. He says, Whoever will duly examine and wait the whole form of ecclesiastical government, as now existing in the papacy, we'll find there is no kind of spoliation in which robbers act more licentiously without law or measure. That's the state of the church there. In the present day, there is no order of men more notorious for luxury, effeminacy, delicacy, and all kinds of licentiousness, licentiousness. In no order are more apt or skillful teachers of imposture, fraud, treachery, and perfidy. Nowhere is there more skill or audacity in mischief. Just say nothing of ostentation, pride, rapacity, and cruelty. He goes on to say, One thing I say which even they themselves will not be able to deny. Among bishops, there is scarcely an individual, and among the parochial clergy, not one in a hundred, who, if sentence were passed on his conduct, according to the ancient canons, would not deserve to be excommunicated or at least deposed from his office. So that's just a glimpse of the state of the church. We think about Titus in Crete, false teachers creeping in, and that's the state of the church prior to the Reformation. The abundance of wolves and false shepherds leading the church. William Vendouder, he says, Not only was Europe at a place of endemic loss of the knowledge of Christ, doctrines of grace, pulpit ministry, and corporate worship, but also resulting loss of faithful shepherding, Pastoring and discipline. It says in some ways the long slow decline which had taken place over centuries was hidden. Incredible church buildings, soaring architecture, rich artistic beauty, drama, pageantry, ritual, and crowds of people masked the laws of true spiritual life. I don't know, but sounds a lot like what we see today. He goes on to say, people could not see the loss of a true care of souls, the lack of pastoral care. At the same time, the veneer of medieval Christendom was thin. Bishops and priests' sexual immorality was rampant. Even the worst cases, even the worst cases, merely led to a temporary suspension, followed by a quick reshuffling to a new church location. Added to this were bribery, greed, gluttony, misuse of church funds, and manipulation of church offices for power and cash. All that we are looking at that's the completely opposite of the qualifications for elders, and all that's completely in agreement with the character of false teachers, that was the leadership of the church. So we think about the Reformation, and we often think we were singing about the soulless here, Sola gratia, sola fide, faith alone, grace alone, for God's glory alone, in Christ alone. All these solas, all these modos were a weapon against false teachings. So you think about as they are declaring this Christ alone. Why? Because they're fighting the false teaching that it's not just Christ, it's Christ plus Mary. Christ plus the saints. So you've got to understand the Reformation was this revolt and this reform against the false teachers and false teachings that had contaminated the church. Or you think about the five points of the doctrines of grace. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. All these points they were actually fighting against or they were trying to silence the false teachings that had permeated the church. And sometimes we forget that the majority of the Reformers, they were actually pastors. Pastors at heart and pastors at calling. So one angle as we are thinking about the Reformation this week, and one angle that we can look at the Reformation is that the Reformation is a protest of pastors against false teachers and their false teachings that had contaminated the flock of Christ. Sometimes we don't think about the Reformation from this angle, but it's a beautiful angle, especially as we're walking through Titus here, to see the Reformation as a protest of pastors saying, we're done, It's it's time to silence them and rebuke them and remove them from the church. We often think about the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Tyndale, Zwingli, Bullinger. Then we think about the Puritans following the Reformers. We often think about them as scholars, theologians, professors, but we forget that they were primarily pastors. They're shepherds. Reformation was as much about shepherds and sheep as it was about theology and theologians. So it's important for us to remember that, especially as we are walking through this beautiful portion of the Scriptures, talking about pastors and false teachers in the church, to remember that. That the Reformation, the Reformers, there were pastors trying to protect the church and purify the church. To quote William again, he says, because sometimes we think about just John Calvin or about just Martin Luther, and you forget they were surrounded by other pastors with them. So he says the work of those who labored alongside Calvin was essential to the reformation of the church in Geneva. Collectively, the reforming ministers of Geneva, they were known as the company of pastors. It's a company of pastors, these reformers. Together they work towards the Reformation in the specific area of the recovery of shepherding and pastoral care for the flock and trust to them. We don't think very often about the Reformation in this light, right? As the pastoral care, shepherding the church. We often think about Martin Luther and we have that picture of him standing in the Diet of Worms and Boldly standing for the truth of God. Remember what happens right after the die of worms. He's caught. Remember that you have his patron, the prince, the elector, Frederick. And he secretly sees Luther. Remember Luther, as he's leaving, he doesn't know. But that's his, it's one who is for him, who seizes him. Captures him before the enemies would capture Luther. And he takes Luther to Wartburg in a castle. There was a castle in Wartburg, and he takes Luther there. And Luther is there in that castle, directing the Reformation, writing and translating the Bible into German from that castle. But sometimes we forget that this man was a pastor. And as he is in this castle, ways from Wittenberg, where he shepherded and where he lived... He heard that some false prophets, the prophets from Zwok, or call, however you want to call that, some false prophets from Zwickal came to Winterberg and they were deceiving the people. These prophets, led by Nicholas Stork, they claimed that they had divine visions, dreams, and visits from the angel Gabriel, and that these revelations were above the scripture. So here's Luther trying to translate the Bible into German because he knows that it's the Bible alone. And now you have these false prophets teaching the church that it's the Bible plus visions. It's the Bible plus the dreams of these men. And as a good and faithful pastor, when Luther found out that these false teachers had reached his flock in Winterberg, Winterberg he left the castle, risking his life, and he returned to Winterberg. So imagine that was a very dangerous journey because people were after Luther to kill him, the Roman Catholic Church. He left and he went there and for eight days he was present in his church preaching from the pulpit, challenging and silencing those false prophets with the scriptures. Philip Schaff, the historian, he says, Being asked by the prince or the elector to give his reasons. Remember, the elector is this wealthy man who took Luther into the castle and was providing everything for him. So when he gave, so Luther, why did you leave the castle? I did not permit you to leave the castle. So being asked by the elector to give his reasons for a return, Luther assigned in in a letter of March 7th from Wittenberg these reasons. The urgent written request of the church at Winterberg, the church asked him to come. The confusion in his flock and his desire to prevent an imminent outbreak. And then he says, My second reason, the confusion in his flock, is that during my absence, Satan has entered my sheepfold. And committed ravages which I cannot repair by writing, but only by my personal presence and living word. He goes on to say, my conscience, here is a true pastor, my conscience would not allow me to delay longer. I was bound to disregard not only you, Highness disfavor, your Highness disfavor, but the whole world's wrath. It's my flock, the flock entrusted to me by God. They are my children in Christ. I could not hesitate a moment. I'm bound to suffer death for them and will cheerfully, with God's grace, lay down my life for them. That's the heart of a shepherd, a man who loves the flock of Christ. And sometimes we, we, we forget that these reformers, they love Christ's flock. interesting. On day 6th, Luther was was there for eight days preaching. On day 6th, one man from the congregation wrote, Dr. Scherf, and he wrote to the prince, the elector, and he said, Oh, what a joy has Dr. Martin's return spread among us. His words, through divine mercy, are bringing back everyday misguided people into the way of the truth. It's as clear as the sun that the spirit of God is in him and that he returned to Winterberg by his special providence. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of faithful pastors. And oftentimes we forget that these men, they love, they love the church. They are pastors at heart. Ordinary men, they're ordinary men who love Christ and love the church and they're willing to die To protect God's flock from false shepherds. They were following the commands of Titus 1, 10 through 16. To protect the flock of God. And you remember that one of the slogans of the Reformation was Semper Reformanda. Semper Reformanda. What does it mean? We we, we always translate, always reforming. A better translation is always being reformed. We are always being reformed by the Word, and the reason why is there will always be false teachers and false teachings trying to creep in, and we need to return to the Word of God. So, with that in mind, and the time is flying this morning, let's go to the outline, and here is the outline, we are just going to look at verses, we are going to look at part two. We saw last Sunday, part one, the rod to silence the false shepherds. And today we're going to come to the rod to rebuke the false shepherds. And remember that the rod is the word of God, sound doctrine. So last Lord's Day, we saw that Paul left the city, the island of Crete, and he left Titus there to put things in order. The church was kind of messy. And one of the ways to set the church in order is to have godly, biblical, qualified leadership. Why? Verse 10 tells us, for Because there are many false teachers already in the church. And that's how nasty Satan is. The church has not even been well ordered. They're not even shepherds. And Satan is already bringing false shepherds to attack the church. And then Paul tells us who they are. In light of who they are, they are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers of the circumcision party. So in light of who they are and what they do, that's verse 11. What they do is they are destroying families, teaching for shameful gain. Because of that, they must be silenced. It's not an option. God commands church leaders to silence. Remember, to gag, to muzzle the false teachers. And for some Christians, that could be a harsh language that can be hard. Oh my goodness, to silence them, to rebuke them. Brothers and sisters, when you understand that the voices of the false shepherds are misguiding people, are deceiving people, and those words are hindering people to see and hear Jesus Christ, you see that's very gracious of God to command us to rebuke and silence them. And the false teachers and those following the false teachings cannot be ignored. That would be easy if we could just ignore. Let's just ignore. But they cannot be ignored. We are commanded that we must silence and rebuke them. So let's move to verses 12 through 14 this morning. And Paul opens verse 12 by saying, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, Said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul now, it's fascinating what he's doing here. He's actually quoting from a a Greek philosopher, a Cretan philosopher from the 6th century before Christ, Epimenides. And he's quoting this this philosopher, and they were called prophets. When Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, he's not referring as the prophet of the Old Testament. He's referring to the titles that they carry in those days. So, for example, Aristotle, Plato, they're all called prophets. So that was just a title of honor that they carry. And Paul is simply using that title and also being sarcastic, saying that this pagan prophet actually is more accurate than these false prophets in the church. And he says, that's Epimenides, as he's summarizing the character of the Cretans. The first thing that he says is that they're liars. Always liars. And that was, Cretans were well known in the ancient world for being liars. Uh, And the primary lie that they were well known for was about Zeus, the Greek god Zeus, Remember that they lied. They would lie to others saying that Zeus was born and died in Crete. And that they actually had a graveside for Zeus. And all the other Greeks would say, you are a heretic. Because Zeus does not die. Zeus was not born in Crete and did not die in Crete. So the Cretans were well known, and that's going to be important. We're going to see later. For false theology, even among the Greeks. We start seeing how false theology, a bad and poor and false understanding of God, leads to lies. They were known for heresy among the Greeks. Not only that, but he calls them evil beasts. Look at that. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts. If you have the NIV with you, it says evil brutes. And when the Bible compares people to beasts and animals, it's always to show that they no longer reflect the image of God. And they're actually reflecting the image of the beasts. Who is the beast par excellence in the scriptures? Satan. So that's when the Bible tells, for example, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he's behaving like a, an animal, meaning he lost his senses of being made in the image of God. Uh, For example, in Jude, and that's a famous mark of false teachers, so in Jude chapter 1, verse 10, Jude says the following about false teachers. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals. Understand instinctively. They're just like wild beasts. And Crete in the ancient world was known for not having wild beasts. So if you have the ancient biologists, they would be writing about Crete and they would say, Oh, Crete is not known for animals, for beasts in the island. And here's the point, is that, Crete does not need to have wild beasts like bears and lions. Why? Because they have the people. It's enough. The people in the island, on the island of Crete, behave like wild animals. So, for example, if you go to Alaska, you've got to be careful in certain areas because you're going to have wolves, grizzly bears, right? Amen? It's true. If you go to Alaska, some areas you're going to have grizzly bears, wolves. If you go to certain parts of India, you must be careful with tigers, with cobras. If you go to some areas of Africa, you must be careful with hippopotamuses, lions, black mambas. But if you go to Crete, you don't need to worry about this type of animals. You need to worry about the population. And I think you could say the same. If you come to Salem, if you go to Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you don't need to worry about living creatures like lions and bears. Why? Because the population behave like wild beasts. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, they're the epitome of fallen humanity, whose self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, man-centered theology, lead them to live in the pasture just like a wild animal. Not only that, they are also called lazy gluttons. Lazy gluttons. That's the last description we have here. And the word gastaris, from where you have gastro, that's related to your stomach, your belly, inside. Uh, Also often used in the scriptures for false teachers. So for example, Paul Will tell the Philippians. He tells the Philippians about false teachers, and he says, Their end is destruction. Their God is what? Their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Similar in Romans 16, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own uh, bellies, appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And I think that would be a clear picture of so many today. Physically and spiritually, lazy gluttons, they worship and serve only their own sinful desires. They're only concerned about their own bellies. That's what they're concerned about. People preoccupied know is the glory and the beauty of Christ's voice themselves, their stomachs, right? That's how you see how people behave. When they're hungry, just myself. And here's the shocking thing. Paul says this testimony is true. This testimony is true. But wait a second, because here is the... If a Cretan says, Cretans are always liars. If a Cretan says, Cretans are always liars. Is he lying or telling the truth? You see, if a Cretan says, Cretans are always liar, is he saying the truth or is he lying? Paul answers the dilemma by saying, this is true. This testimony is true. And it's a clear picture, I would say, of the power of sin. As we are first looking at Crete and the people in Crete That's a clear picture of the power of sin and how sin can and will manifest itself in very particular ways, in particular locations and group of people. John Mahoney, he says, Sin, however, is more than simply personal transgression. The post-fall reality also features societal wrongs. One major component of the prophetic ministry in Israel, was the confrontation of societal sins. Sins of the society, which violated the covenant and provoked the Lord's judgment. So if you read the prophets, you see how the prophets often target some nations and very specific sins connected to those nations. So for example, if you read the book of Amos, the first oracles are against some nations and there are very specific sins about those nations. That's how sin manifests itself. You think about the book of Jonah, and Jonah preaches, and the king of Nineveh, remember the Assyrians, they're well known for what? The Assyrians were well known for violence. Remember, they would hang the skins of people as wallpaper. They would compete, to see, who had the greatest, the, the highest pile of bodies. They were violent people. And that's exactly the sin that marks them. And when we hear that the word of God confronted the king of Nineveh, the sin that he repents of is the specific sin of the violence of our hands. Different sins mark different parts of the world. It's all sin, but sin manifests itself in particular ways, right? So if I... Let's suppose you travel a different country, and somebody asks you, what do Americans look like? What are Americans like? And you have the opportunity, just like Epimenides, to describe the American people. Of course, there are always some positive traits, but as you look at the sins marking a nation, could you say the murderers, with all the abortion that's taking place in this nation? nation of murderers, liars. Lies about sexuality, lies about life, lies about politics. And last year, the Gallup Gallup poll revealed how Americans' trust in the media remains near record low. So many lies, you don't know what to believe. How about sexual perverts? Sexual perversion. Now known as sexual education in so many schools and libraries. Child pornography, pornography, celebration of LGBTQ+. How about hedonistic, another trait that we could describe this nation? How about self-destroying moral individualistic? Those are how sins can manifest in a place and mark that people, right? I was born and raised in Brazil. How about Brazil. How about Brazilians? If I'm going to describe them as Epimenides is describing the Cretans. Impunity. There's no punishment for crimes, especially politically. Right now in Brazil, the president is a man who had been arrested before for corruption. And he's back leading the country. Corruption, bribe all over the place. People carry cash with their driver's license. So when the cops pull you over, you give your driver's license, there's cash there. So he can just take the cash, give you the driver's license back, and you can keep going. How about sexuality? Carnival. That's what marks a nation. Think about how certain sins manifest themselves in a particular way in certain families how certain families are marked by a certain manifestation of sin. Only the gospel of Jesus has the power to deliver people from the domain, the power of sin. Amen? So George Knight, in his commentary, he says, Paul is not making an ethics lure, but he's merely accurately observing as the Cretans themselves and others did how the sin that affects the whole human race comes to particular expression in this group. Sin and evil are not abstract philosophies. It manifests in real life, in real situations. So Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he says, people think, oh, Paul, Paul is going to say, oh, how messed up, how mean of... Epimenides to say this, right? Oh, Epimenides, how mean you are to describe people like that. You'd think that Paul would just say, oh, no, no, Epimenides is wrong. People are loving by nature. People are good by nature. Actually, Paul says it's true. And we live in a society that people, especially in our country, they're very weak, feeble. They cannot handle an ounce. I was going to say one gram, but you guys are ounces. We cannot handle one ounce of veracity and truth. They want to play that they're tough and they're arguing. But as soon as truth comes, they they crumble. They cry. People get offended when they read that. But if you know the truth, if you know the truth that the Bible teaches about sin the depravity of sin, if you know the truth about God's holiness, if you know the truth about God's grace, you know that apart from His grace, we all are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Amen? Amen. And we should not be offended. As Christians, we should rejoice in the mercy of God that help us to see the truth of His grace and mercy. So Philip Towner, he says, Such a statement would not have put off the Cretan Christians, like so many Americans are put off. No, for it would be understood that they should regard themselves as rescued from this perverse lifestyle. So instead of being offended, Christians must rejoice in the mercy of God. Amen? And then Paul says, verse 13, This testimony is true. And now here he drops the bombshell. It's shocking what he says. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Wait a second, is Paul telling the, the, the Christians, the churches, to rebuke the people outside the church? No, he's actually saying that they are inside the church. That's how heartbreaking it is that these false teachers they actually embody all the evil of the Cretan culture. That's why he says, rebuke them sharply, because they are inside the churches. Paul is applying the description of the Cretans to the false teachers and all those who are following the false teachers. And here is the, 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 the interesting thing that Paul is doing here, and sometimes we, we have a hard time catching it. But remember that the Cretans were well known as liars because they lied about God. They were known for their heresies about Zeus. And Paul is applying that to the false teachers because they are liars. Because they have this false understanding and this false teaching about the true God. So Theuman he helps us understand here. And I hope he will do a better job than I am doing. He says, the Cretans were regarded by many in antiquity as lying specifically about Zeus. Since they claim That he was a man divinized for his benefactions to society whose gravesite could be seen on their island. The proverb links the Cretan lie about God with their behavior. Look at that. Paul's quotation of the proverb is, therefore, an effort to say that at least the false teachers fit this stereotype of Cretans because they have false understanding of God. And this false understanding fits hand in glove with their vicious way of life. Meaning, bad theology will always lead to bad lifestyle. That's what Paul is telling us here. Your theology will in inevitably affect how you live. So if the Cretans' poor theology about zoos affect their life, how much more these false teachers and People who claim to be Christians having a false understanding about the true and living God. And that is a strong jab that Paul is throwing against the false teachers here. Because he's actually saying that these false teachers who are claiming to be holier than other people. They're actually the embodiment of the evil culture. That's a strong punch. Remember that the false teachers, they claim to be Obeying and abiding the, by the law of Moses. They claim to have a higher purity than other people. They claim to be better than other people. And, and Paul actually comes and just punches them right in the face with the sound doctrine. And says, actually, these men, they're worse than the Cretans because they claim to love and know the true God. So Paul tells, therefore, rebuke them sharply. And the them here is the false teachers and those who are following the false teachers. The false teachers and the members of the church were following these false teachers. That's the them here. Rebuke them sharply. You see, because once you start following the liars, you're going to become little liars. As you're following these evil beasts, you're becoming little evil beasts. As you are following these lazy gluttons, you are little lazy gluttons. And that's why Paul says, rebuke them sharply. And I would say, sadly, sadly, many people in churches today, they're just like these lazy gluttons. Devouring and eating all sorts of teachings without exercising discernment. Lazy gluttons. And Paul's command to rebuke these people. They, neither, they, they need, they must enter to a life of diet. Diet, stop eating this garbage and exercise, start exercising discernment. They need to stop listening to 30 sermons per day and focus on the one that they're listening at their local church. They need to put away the Jesus calling, the five love language, the great disappearance, wild at heart, the purpose driven life, Joyce May. They need to put away the garbage and start eating and exercising well. So, that's Paul's command rebuke them sharply. Look at verse 9. Because Paul told the the elders, they need to be holding to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and what? And what? Rebuke. But you see, in verse 9, he just talks about rebuke, but now he tells about a sharp rebuke. So sometimes in the life of the local church, there will be rebukes and there will be sharp Sharp rebuke. We love the, rightly so, we love the ministry of reconciliation, right? I love the ministry of reconciliation. We love the ministry of comforting one another, bearing one another's burden. But why do we cringe when the Bible talks about this ministry of rebuke? Why do we draw back when the Bible calls And gives us a duty to admonish and reprove certain people. We must love the whole Bible. The whole Bible. Not just parts of the Bible. The whole. John MacArthur once said, Pacifism has never been a pastoral option in the war for people so Any pastor who teaches faithfully is called both to exhort believers in sound doctrine and to refute those who who oppose sound doctrine. And the rebuke here, brothers and sisters, never rebuke for rebuke's sake. We're not rebuking just for rebuke's sake so I can feel good. Never feels good, actually. Rebuke should never be the fruit of a quick temper or a violent character, as we saw in verse 7. But always, rebuke must be always the fruit of our love for God and for the church and for that person who is being rebuked. The word rebuke, (elēho) means to bring a person to the point of recognizing the wrongdoing. That's all you want to do, to bring that person to the point of recognizing that that was messed up, I sinned. And the ministry of rebuke was the ministry, and it is the ministry of Jesus, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's the ministry of pastors, and it's the ministry of the church. Sometimes we forget that. Look at Jesus, Revelation 3, 19. Those whom I love, Jesus says, I what? I rebuke. John 16, 8. And when the Comforter, the Holy Spirit comes, he will rebuke the world. Concerning sin, that's the word, the same word you used there. The word for sharp, uh, rebuke them sharply. The, 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 the Greek word they used was first used for cutting something. And it has to be sharp. You want to cut something well, just like you're, you're going to perform a surgery. And you've got to have that blade sharp. And that's the picture. As, as a physician, he needs to remove that sharply. Because if it's dull and you're trying to cut something, the disease is going to just spread all over the place. That's the picture here. And look at the purpose. Look at the purpose of the rebuke. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be a Sound in faith. The rebuke here is not just for vindication, but actually restoration, salvation, sanctification. That's the purpose of the rebuke. These people are literally sick. Look at it. They, they, they may be what? Sound. The word, remember, it's from where we have hygiene. They may be healthy. These, these people are sick. They're dying, and they need a rebuke to come in just to cut that. Like a sharp knife in the hand of a surgeon, just to remove the cancer, just like was done here. They need to remove that. There's going to spread all over the body. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Sound in the faith is not just sound in faith, but sound in the faith that they will embrace the sound teaching of the gospel. And consequently, that will affect their life of faith. So, we come towards the end of these verses. I will pick it up next, Lord's Day, verse 14. But as we bring to a conclusion here, brothers and sisters, it's only when these false teachers and these false teachings are silenced, rebuked, that the sound and the health teaching can go forth and bring life to people. That's why it's a very loving thing of the Lord Jesus to command us to silence them and rebuke them. Otherwise, the sweet voice of Jesus will be muffled. They will not be able to hear the voice of Christ. And they need to hear sound doctrine. Remember, sound theology, healthy theology, so people can have a a healthy understanding of God, a sound understanding of who God is, and that will lead to a sound understanding of who man is. You see, the problem in the churches today is that people have a very unhealthy doctrine of God, and suddenly men are better, man is better, man is higher, man is greater than God, and the whole church is about man. We need sound theology so we can have a glimpse of who we are and who he is. So I'll finish quoting John Calvin. He says, in his Institutes, he says, it's evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness. I'm I'm pretty good, right? You're comparing yourself with other people. Wisdom and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. That's what happens when people are not looking to the true God, when they have no sound theology about who God is. They start having a high view of themselves. Calvin says, on the other hand, when people behold God, he says, but should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being he is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed what formerly delighted us by its, by its false show of righteousness we will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. Isn't that true? When you have the sound teaching of who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, we see that we are just filthy before the Holy God. And apart from Christ, we are nothing but wrath-deserving sinners. That's why they must be rebuked. That's why they must be silenced. So they may have a glimpse, because sound doctrine will help people to see Christ. They will help to see themselves as lost, and Christ as the great Savior who has great mercy. And the church cannot be like Crete the church is a different society. The church here in Salem cannot look like the Salem culture and society. By no means. We are a different society. We are people who have been rescued by His mercy and by His grace. We are people indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that's why they must be silenced. They must be rebuked. So that the sound teaching will go forth and people will behold Christ and love Jesus and treasure Jesus. And that's the only way to have a healthy lifestyle. Amen. So it's God's mercy when he tells us to rebuke and silence them. Father, we, we thank you for this time that we sit under your, your teaching. Thank you for your word. The word above all earthly powers. Your word is indeed a lamp into our feet. Your word is honey in our lips. Your word is the greatest treasure that we can have here on earth, Lord. Because your word reveals who you are, reveals who we are. So thank you. And I pray, Lord, the uh, Despite all my weaknesses, all my limitations, I pray that the preaching of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would produce fruit in our lives, Lord. Help us to be mindful that apart from your grace, we all are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, Lord. But we humble ourselves and we thank you for your great mercy upon us, that change us, It makes us people who love the truth. Instead of evil beasts, you make us holy children, holy servants. Instead of lazy gluttons, you make us faithful slaves, longing to serve you. It's all by your grace. It's all by your mercy. And Lord, for those here who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That they would run to Jesus that they would run to Christ and that all the false teachings, all the unhealthy doctrines that have been taught would fall, fall to the ground. And they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ and embrace him by faith and be embraced by him. In Jesus' name, amen.